Hey, what's up, guys? It is December 7th, and you have tuned in to another episode of the Do Big Things podcast. This is episode 112. My guest this week, Eric Schlimmer, has climbed almost 2,500 mountains. That's insane. He spent over a thousand nights camping in the wilderness, and he's written a bunch of books about his experiences, things he's learned along the way. So this was just a super fascinating conversation for me. He's been on the show before. He was on episode 36 of the Do Big Things podcast. If you go back and listen, you'll remember Eric is the guy who doesn't filter his water when he's out in the wild. Unfortunately, we didn't even get to that topic in this conversation, I don't think, but uh, he dips right into a stream and consumes, which goes against everything we've been taught. No filtering, no iodine tablets, nothing. So Eric is one of those guys that thinks outside of the box. He marches to the beat of his own drum. And those are the people that I love. These are the folks that I want to come on the show and chat. I am pretty sure you guys are going to love this conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing. If you need coaching, pacers, or crew for your ultramarathon next year, look us up. Whether you're new to the sport or an elite, we've got someone for you. You can find everything at big-things-crewing.com. And if you'd like to support us, our mission, or be a part of the Do Big Things tribe, we are on Patreon. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can support us for a month. Patreon.com slash do big things. We would like to thank our newest supporter of the podcast, Bigger Than the Trail. If you haven't heard of these guys, you need to check them out. Bigger Than the Trail is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization that is using trail running as a platform to advocate for mental health. If you've ever thought about getting therapy and aren't in the position where you can afford it, or you don't want to go into an office, Bigger Than the Trail offers you free therapy for up to three months. What? Yes, free it's all online. Uh, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Uh, man, I love what these guys are doing. I, I couldn't love these guys anymore. I signed up. It was quick. It was easy. They matched me up with a therapist that meets my personal criteria. And I have my first appointment with her tomorrow. I'm trying this thing. You guys should try this thing. And we can all do it together. Look up Bigger Than The Trail. Sign up for their services and let's do the small things in life that eventually lead us to doing the big things. This podcast is also brought to you by Athletic Brewing, On Pace Wellness, and Exoskin. Stick around to the end of the show and I'm going to get you some discount codes for items or services that are just going to enhance your outdoor adventures. All right, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for my man, Eric Schlimmer. Yeah, baby. This is the Do Big Things Podcast, where we want to inspire you to do big things. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing, a service for ultra runners from beginner to elite. Not only can we get you trained up, but we can also crew you into the finish line. Find us at big-things-crewing.com. Now, here is your host, Adam McRoberts. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, listen, man, thank you for doing this again. Um, <laughs> I hated hated reaching out to you and saying, Oh man, that great conversation we had. <laughs> I, I thought it was a good one. Yeah, it's gone. Um, I don't know. Technology is turning against me, man. Like I lost our conversations. I got hacked on Instagram. Um, I don't know what's going on. Like is Mercury and Mercury and retrograde or what's happening? Right. Well, luckily <laughs> I, re- I remember our entire conversations. <laughs> okay. So, and thank you, by the way, for sending me your book. Um, oh, good. Yes. My at Adirondacks. I really appreciate it. And cool. I haven't yeah. had a chance to get very far, but I have dug into it. And just uh, from what I've read, I bet that you do remember all of our conversation because you have a <laughs> tremendous memory. I try. <laughs> um, do you have like a photographic memory? I don't think so. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> I remember stuff in the mountains very well. Uh-huh. It, it's all kind of a blur due to so much hiking I've done, but yeah, yeah my well, memory's pretty good on adventures. It seems like it. And I get a feeling that after I finish your book, I'm going to know you a lot better, you know? And I think so. Yeah. That's, that's uh, a compliment to any author. So how's things? How's your week? Things are good. Um, <laughs> this happens every year as a therapist, uh, you're forced or voluntold to hang out with your dysfunctional family members for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so we're really busy uh, between Thanksgiving and the Christmas. And then after Christmas, about the next following two months, I'm booked solid from wow. sun, sundown. So it gets pretty intense uh, around the holidays. Understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I bet. Well, luckily you have hiking to sort of blow off the steam. And <laughs> for anybody listening that, that doesn't know who Eric is, um, he is definitely a veteran hiker. Uh, in fact, his moniker is, is the hiking veteran. And he has been around for a long time. He's hiked a, just a ton of mountains that you've probably never heard of. He's hiked long, long trails, through hikes, um, over a thousand nights out camping. This guy has absolutely done it all. So... <sighs> Eric, if you don't mind, give us give us a quick intro. Tell us who you are. Yeah, I'm primarily known as that guy who hikes a lot. You know, <laughs> is that that hiking dude? <laughs> and I am the hiking dude. Uh, I got into hiking in uh, 1985. I think I did my first hike, and the rest is history. Just totally fell in love with the mountains. I've been fortunate enough to be able to work in the mountains for about a decade, uh, being an outdoor educator, trail builder, backcountry ranger. And so I got paid to hike, which was really nice. And nowadays, um, I am still the hiking dude, but they also say, isn't that the, the guy who does therapy or something? <laughs> uh, you know, living out of a tent and getting paid to do so when you're 25 is pretty cool. When you're 45, it kind of loses a little bit of <laughs> So I'm all grown up and I'm a fully functioning member of society, but I'm still in the mountains every weekend. So yeah, I'm the hiker dude and I'm that guy who does therapy. 
Yeah. Yeah. And now you're the Colorado guy. Um, before you were over on the East coast and you recently moved to Colorado. And since you've been here, you've tackled a few hundred mountains within the last year or so. Yeah. I moved to Colorado, November, uh, 2019. So I've been here a little over two years. Okay. A pretty typical story. Most people do two trips to Colorado. They come out here on vacation, they go home, grab all their stuff and move here. Yes. That's really the story. And that's exactly what happened to me. I had been here in 2015. I had been here in 2018. And then I asked a good question. I said, why would I just not live where I go on vacation? Yeah. Good question. And the answer was obviously, yes, I'm really happy to be here. And uh, I like the West for a bunch of reasons. I find people to be very authentic, uh, very friendly. Uh, the, the weather is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Colorado Springs has about 80% of its days are sun up to sundown. Mm-hmm. Skies, no humidity, no bugs. It's just a really, really pleasant place to hike and a lot of pleasant people. So here we go. Yeah. As an East Coaster with a ton of experience in the mountains there, um, what drew you to Colorado? What specific, like, were you coming to climb a peak? Were you coming to visit a national park? What were you up to? Yeah, my first time here, uh, one of my endeavors is to visit the highest peak in each state. I'll probably do the lower 48 and not bother with Alaska and Hawaii. But I came here, I was working a, a trail project in North Dakota. And relatively speaking, Colorado wasn't that far away. So hell, I'm out here. I'll go climb Mount Elbert, highest peak in New Mexico, and a couple other state high points. So I just came out, did some hiking in the high peaks, and you know, loved it. I, I was like, wow, this is like hiking in a postcard. <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for Julie Andrews to break out of Timberline and break into song. It was so beautiful. And then I came back and did the backpacking trip uh, a couple years later. And then I was kind of getting a feeling for Colorado. Uh, what's Denver like? What is Colorado Springs like? What are the financial opportunities out here for employment? Um, what are the people like? And I was drawn to Colorado in many ways. I like that kind of wild west layer to it. I love the scenery. I love the Great Plains, the mountains, and everything in between. It, in the Northeast, Northeast is gorgeous. It, it's got its own little flavor of attractiveness. It's not for everybody, but I had hiked so much in the Northeast that I was kind of expending places to hike. In the Northeast, I've been up probably around 1,500, 1,600 peaks, and it it was all kind of starting to look the same, and so it was nice to get out here and just have a totally new environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Colorado is so unique that way too. Um, and yeah, you can just hold a camera up just about anywhere, point it in any direction and it could be a postcard. It's just yeah, tremendous out here. It's so beautiful. Um, well, let's go back for people who, who, who don't know who you are. How, how did this all start? You said that it started in, in 1985 with just that one hike, but um, where did it go from there? Like now you have climbed thousands of peaks. You've written several books. Like how, how did, what, what bridge, bridge, bridge the gap for us there, if you would, please. Yeah. Uh, I grew up as a city kid in the 1980s, you know, BMX bikes and arcades, that era. It was, it was great. Life was a lot simpler. In the <laughs> Not only because I was younger, but just life was simpler back then. So uh I actually grew up 
in the Adirondack Mountains of so upstate New York. My parents moved there in the mid 1980s. Went on a hike, it was my first one, 1985, went up a little mountain in the Adirondacks. And I was like, this is just so cool. It's so cool. And even back then, uh, speaking of simplicity, I just like the simplicity of it all. Mm-hmm. And whether you're going up a big mountain out west or you're hiking the Florida Trail through the Everglades or whatever, wherever you are, life is pretty simple in the mountains. I mean, you eat when you're hungry and you stay warm and try not to get too hot and don't fall off a cliff. And that's about it. Backpacking is an incredibly safe sport. So I really like the simplicity of it all. Uh, And I just love nature. I love, sounds cliche, but I love animals. I love trees, the weather. I like being hungry in the mountains and eating. I like being cold in the mountains and getting warm. I like being wet in the mountains and getting dry. It's all very psychologically rewarding. So I fell in love with it. I went in the army in the early nineties, got out, got back into hiking and was fortunate enough to have, again, a lot of that work outside. I worked in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, North Carolina, uh, building trails mostly and being a backcountry ranger. It was just a great way to make a living. Certainly didn't need a gym membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just totally cool. I was a nomad. One summer I lived in the back of a Subaru wagon in a gravel pit. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> eating a lot of ramen on a whisper light stove and uh, a camera and a jar of peanut butter. You know, that was my life back then. And I'm just really, really grateful, uh, very fortunate for two things. One is I have the passion. So there are people in life, and we've talked about this, it's tragic. You can have people go through life and they never find their passion. They, mm-hmm. they find their jam. They never find their thing. And that's, it's tragic is, is the best descriptor for it. So I'm thankful for that. And then thankful that I just have the ability to do it. You know, I'm, I'm almost 50. I'm still hiking like a mountain goat and it just feels great. So that, that now that I'm all grown up and, and basically a fully functioning member of society, I still spend quite a lot of time in the mountains and, you know, like you with running and adventure, it's just, it's who you are. So it's not like I'm Eric and I also like to hike. It's really part of my personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious when you were in your early twenties and you were out camping by yourself and making a living, but kind of dirtbagging it, were you writing back then? Were you keeping a journal and keeping a log of, of every day Mm -hmm. and all the mountains you climbed and yeah, just like a journal, just daily prose. Yeah, good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Uh, the answer is yes. Okay. So I, I got up around maybe 100 mountains climbed in the Northeast, primarily in the Adirondacks. I just had this memory of every single peak. Like I, I could tell you exactly what every summit looked like. And out there, they all kind of look the same. But I can pick up on these little nuances. And then around peak 150, I, it all became a blur. I couldn't remember. I was like, did I climb that? I, I don't even know if I've been up that mountain. So I'd have to look at a map. So I started keeping a journal and I've done that ever since probably the mid 1990s. Uh, it's a little pocket journal. And if it's a significant mountain, like maybe on a list of mountains I'm climbing, uh, when I get on top, I write an entry, I record uh, some data, like how many people did I see? Uh, what's the weather, uh, the temperature, the wind, what animals did I see? And then I'll just make a general entry, you know, 
stumbled into this beautiful black spruce forest at 2,300 feet. And I'm kind of narrating how I got to the summit. Uh, each entry, uh, each journal holds a tw- 125 entries. I think I've got like 16 journals. Mm. <laughs> I've got, you know, probably about 2,000 entries somewhere around there. And it's great because there's no way I'll remember. And it is kind of romantic reading them, going back to when I was like 24, 25, or back nomad, and just hiking these mountains. Um, But the theme in most of the entries is just the beauty. Mm -hmm. Never like, oh, I made it up in an hour. I I don't care about that. It's just, yeah, I saw some moose tracks. Great. I heard something calling, could have been a bobcat. That's amazing. You know, encountered three feet of snow on the north side, bear slopes on the south side. Anything about nature is fair game for me to record. And I'm also really, really organized with photos. So I've got thousands of photos. Every single one's labeled. Every one has its own individual folder for each hike. I'm, I'm very organized like that because of it, eventually it just all becomes a blur. You know, it's like, with running, I, I mean, once you're up to thousands and thousands of miles or scores of races, you're like, wait, did I run a race in Virginia? Right. <laughs> you don't even know. Yeah. So yeah, it's good to keep those things in mind. Yeah. Um, have you always like taken pictures digitally or do you have uh, old photos as well? I do. You know, I had a camera. I still remember this when I was in the military, that was 91, 92, 93. I was like the only guy with a camera. <laughs> nobody really had cameras back then and so I I just got into shooting daily military life we went to uh, Central America for a deployment took a lot of photos down there it's very very pretty down there and then when I got out uh, mid-1990s on all my hikes I had a camera I mean this is way you know this is back when you (laughs) you had to take your film into CVS and it developed into prints and uh, got my first digital camera in 2005, which of course made it so much easier because, you know, just photography back then, it, it, it's, it's pretty humorous because you take a photo and you're like, I hope that comes out good. Right. You don't even know what it looks like. You know, you're just <laughs> hoping you took a good photo. And the beauty of the digital camera coming out, of course, is I could take 30 photos of a tree, delete 29. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I'm a big fan of take a million pictures, go home, delete about three quarters of those. Um, But I remember, uh, you know, getting those pictures on film too, and and running out of the CVS, and then you're in the parking lot going through all your pictures, and you get those that little dopamine rush of Oh, okay, 24 exposure, and I got one good one. But this is a really, really good one. Yeah, Uh, yeah, we've, we've come a long ways. Yeah, it was like opening a little present. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh, it actually came out halfway decent. Or oh, all of them suck. Yeah. I got to throw them out. Yeah, yeah. Something that uh, the kids nowadays probably won't experience. Uh, probably not. <laughs> but I think that's cool that you kept a journal throughout all those years and just documented everything, and that eventually led to multiple books for you. So when did you sit down and and say, I I think that I could, I think I could write a book, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your first book that you sent me. No, that's, um, probably around number five. 
Okay. Okay. My bad. Yeah. Um, but tell me about the first time you sat down and started thinking, I think I want to write a book and I have all these old journals and I have all these old documents so I can put the times and the dates and mm -hmm. I can remember everything. Um, how did it all start for you? I know exactly where I was and when. So <laughs> I uh, through hiked the Florida Trail. It's 1,300 miles long, but it's got a couple splits, so you only do 1,200. And I hiked from Pensacola south to the northern border of Everglades National Park. My friend flew down. I said, hey, if you need a vacation, you know, I'm, I'm down in the Everglades. So she picked me up at the southern terminus, and we went down to the Keys. It was like a little vacation for her, a little vacation for me. And uh, she's saying, you got to tell me about this hike because it, it was almost two months. And uh, Florida is known for its eccentric residents. <laughs> I must have some good stories. <laughs> and I started telling her, oh, I met this guy. And then I got lost. And I almost got bit by this water moccasin. And then it rained and I got lost. And she said, yeah, you should write a book about your through hike. Mm -hmm. And I, I took it as conceded. I, I was like, write a book about myself, like who the hell cares what I do, you know, mm -hmm. a book about myself just seemed very tacky. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, you, you should write something. She's you'd probably be a good writer. And she goes, what, what about your adventures on all these other long trails, you know, kind of like a, a big memoir. And I had hiked the Northville Placid Trail, the Long Trail, uh, Metacombinadoc Trail, Coas Trail, a lot of them before the Florida Trail. But still, I didn't want to write about myself. So I, I wrote my first book, which was a, a general guidebook to all the long distance trails in the United States, except the big three, which would be Pacific Crest, Continental Divide, and Appalachian Trails. So they all range between 100 and 1,200 miles. And it was a, a book designed for long distance hikers who are like, you know what? I'm not going to hike for six months. Uh, it was designed for backpackers who are like, I want to hike a long distance trail, but not 1300, 1800, whatever. I'll do a 200 mile trail. That sounds fun. So that's the audience it appealed to. And that was published by McGraw Hill. And then I took a break from writing books. I wrote a lot of magazine articles. Hmm. Uh, didn't write, I wasn't writing any online articles back then, writing for Mountain Biking Magazine, Canoe and Kayak, like some pretty big names, just short, brief articles on whatever expertise I could offer that they were looking for. And then started my own publishing company in 2013, Beachwood Books. And I've just been cranking out books since then. So number 10 will be out summer 2022. Uh, so that's a good run, uh, nine books in the last nine years. <laughs> that's legit, man. Yeah. You like to get after it. Um, <laughs> you climb a lot of mountains and you write a lot of books. And those are two of my favorite things. So, yeah, very cool. Um, while we're on the subject, tell us about your latest book. Right. So the latest book, um, I'm like, <laughs> it's funny. It looks like I'm pretending uh, what my last book was, but I really don't remember. <laughs> I think it was the, um, it was, oh, I know. <laughs> I'm dumb. Uh, a guidebook. Uh, not a guidebook, a historical guidebook to the Northville Placid Trail in upstate New York. So upstate New York has a 133-mile trail, goes through a good chunk of the Adirondack Park. And my specialty is toponyms. Nobody knows what that means. So we've got place names, right? So you have Montana, you have Pittsburgh, 
you have El Paso County. Those are all place names. And then a, a subset under those are toponyms. And those are just natural features. So we've got Pikes Peak, we've got the castle, we've got 11 mile reservoir in Colorado and all these interesting features. And I'm the guy who figures out how those get their names. Mm. So I did that for the Northville Placid Trail. As you're hiking along, you're going to cross Goldmine Brook. You're going to go to Canary Pond. You're going to go to Wanaka Falls. And just how do these things get their names? And it's really obscure history and it's it's quite esoteric writing but once you get into it it's actually really interesting and what I tell people is every feature whether it's the street you grew up on the town you live in or the county you live in or the mountain you live next to uh, there's a story behind every name and usually the story is pretty good and so that's my niche I mostly write about toponyms in the northeast I've historically decoded probably like 700 of them. And the, the beauty of that type of work is you just can't Google it. it it's, it's not on Google. So I have to sort through surveyors journals, old newspaper articles, um, explorers journals, um, all kinds of kind of obscure sources, old maps, which I really enjoy. It, it's really honest to goodness detective work. And so most of my books are actually about toponyms. Mm. With your writing career and your mountaineering career, do you have anybody that you emulate? Like, I would personally put you in a category with like maybe Jerry Roach or Bill Bryson, some of these writers who have, have gone out and, and done their research and written these, these beautifully crafted books. Um, do you have anybody that you look up to and, and sort of emulate? Oh, sure. And it's tough. Those are big shoes to fill. Um, my favorite writing style is Hunter S. Thompson. Mm, there we go. That's my guy. <laughs> he is just, well, was, he's since deceased. Yes. Um, you know, he'd call it gonzo writing. Uh -huh. This is way with words where kind of like his life, his sentences and paragraphs and books are like just on the verge of non-reality. Right. <laughs> just has a certain way with words. I remember he was talking about crows versus ravens. And he said, you know, a crow would rather commit suicide than go up against a raven. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that. You know? <laughs> right. He would say like, it would rather fly away, but it's not going to commit suicide. You know? <laughs> <laughs> birds do. So his writing style is awesome. I, I read most of his books and it's a real, real gem. Uh, when it comes to history, uh, I will never be even half as good as America's greatest historian, who is David McCullough. Uh, David McCullough uh, has written some very hefty books. He wrote a biography of John Adams, uh, a great book about the year 1776. Uh, Nothing Like It in the World. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. That was Stephen Ambrose. Uh, wrote a book about the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, wrote a book about the Panama Canal, a couple of biographies, one being Teddy Roosevelt. And McCullough, he, he's just America's greatest historian ever. And, and not far behind him is Stephen Ambrose. He wrote Nothing Like It in the World, which is about Transcontinental Railroad. His most famous work, a lot of people have read, is Undaunted Courage, which is about the Lewis and Clark expedition. So those are really hefty historians where they can um, 
you know, all those stories are are very interesting. Like Transcontinental Railroad is, is really fascinating history, but they turn it into a story and it takes immense talent to write about the process of building a 2000 mile section of track. And the reader doesn't even get lost. You know, they're mm-hmm. on, hey, are we in Utah or what tunnel is this? They're so conscientious. It's incredibly impressive. Now with McCullough, especially about the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, if you can sell a bestseller about a bridge, <laughs> I mean, you're probably pretty good. Right. If, Bill Bryson, if you can sell a book about how you suck at hiking, <laughs> that's pretty, I mean, he didn't make it anywhere near Maine. Right. <laughs> right. Georgia, it's a book of failure, right? Who the hell wants to read that? Well, if Bill Bryson writes it, somebody will probably read it. Yeah. And that's how I learned how to write. I, I don't have a degree in English or writing or anything like that. It's just from reading really good authors, especially outdoor authors. And, and you kind of, uh, I think the most important thing was writing is you have to get your point across and have the audience follow you. So like right now when we're talking, I've got it pretty easy. I can use facial expressions and my body language, my tone, my cadence. I could take pauses for emphasis but when you're writing, all that is unavailable. You only have syntax. And so the traditional forms of communication that we use are not at the disposal of a writer. And that's why writing is so difficult. Yeah. You talk about that voice, like that voice that Hunter Thompson had. Is that something that you strive for to sort of find your own voice? Because like, you know, Hunter's work, you could almost just read the first paragraph of a piece and know that it was a Hunter Thompson piece. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you work towards or is that something that you feel comes naturally after a while? Yeah, I do. And, and when I used to teach, I taught outdoor education at colleges for quite a few years. Um, you could tell when students were emulating somebody else and it, it came across as inauthentic. It just right. didn't sound like them. Uh, so if they had a, a favorite writer, let's say Robert Frost, it would just sound a little too poetic, a little too airy, and you could tell, right? So if I wanted to sound like Hunter S. Thompson, I think it would come across as inauthentic. But that from him is his strong language, like, you know, a a, a no messing around style, like the crow who's going to commit suicide, right? And so I like that forceful language when it has its place, So I'll give you a great example. I drove to work the other day and I-25 was backed up as far as I could see. And at the exit I get off of for work, Fillmore Street, it didn't say accident at Fillmore Street. It said crash. And it just sounded better. It just sounded like something bad happened. And I was talking to a colleague about this and she said, oh yeah, I, I once saw one of those big yellow signs that said wreck. And I was like, oh, that's great, you know? afraid that somebody was in a wreck. There's a difference between accident, crash, and wreck. Just like if you're a a reporter embedded, let's say in Fallujah with Marines, you don't write for the Washington Post. Uh, It was tragic they got ambushed and a Marine got shot in the tummy. (laughs) He got shot, not even the stomach, he got shot in the gut. Just as that like a very robust, no-nonsense type of communication. And that's what I like about Hunter S. Thompson. With Hunter S. Thompson, you would never say, what do you mean by that? 
or you know it, it what you see is what you get and that's a really good quality in writers yeah yeah 100 percent um yeah have you always been that way have you do you always look for the word are you always listening to conversations? If you're watching a movie, are you always sort of ma- taking these mental notes? Like that was a beautiful description or that was a beautiful word. Um, is that something that you're always listening for as a writer? I am. I am. There's an old quote among writers, you know, I only steal from the best. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Somebody will say something or, or use some type of unique language, a word I've never heard. And then vice versa, people misuse words all the time, especially words that sound quite similar, like uh, fortunate and fortuitous. They're, they're total opposites. They don't have anything to do with each other. But people will uh, confuse that. Uh, I have a, a pet peeve against anybody on this planet who perpetually uses the word literally. Uh, it, it's one of the few things in life that makes me want to tear what little hair I have out of <laughs> literally uh that's not how it's used you don't know what words mean so (laughs) so yeah i do pick up um on what people are saying i've just always been very interested in language and the words that people choose again there's a big difference between a tummy a stomach and a gut yeah yeah, hundred percent. Um, I'm curious when you are working on a writing piece, are you someone who has to edit down or as you're editing, are you adding things in? Does the piece just get bigger or are you cutting down to a smaller piece? Right. Yeah. And there's a, another quote, I think it's from Pascal and it's been, there are different variations, but he says something to the effect that he writes his friend a letter and he says, uh, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> is great and it's again that precise language so um what i'll do is just write the first draft of a book i just bang out the whole thing and then i'll start going through it page by page uh there there's very little to cut out there's really no fat to trim really my manuscripts i'm usually adding something right so if i'm writing a a history book about upstate new york and i um, I'm writing about a character who was, um, let's say, uh, heroic in the Revolutionary War. I may go in and bother to find out where he was born and who his parents were. And if he had kids, that they joined the military and stuff like that. So I tend to be adding rather than subtracting. I have a manuscript assistant and a bunch of proofreaders. And they're really never suggesting anything gets trimmed off it's pretty bare bones uh and i've learned that through mostly through writing manuals there are a couple of really good manuals out there and uh, one of the rules is if you know if you can say something in four words instead of eight just say it in four Mm -hmm. and it 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 i believe it makes a writer uh sound like they have authority, like they know what they're talking about, right? So a, a parallel example, an opposite example is when you ask a politician a question, it's like, I don't know, what, was that even an answer? I was going to say, I don't know what the hell that answer was, but I don't even know if it's an answer. <laughs> this round and round and round. And people like straightforward language that doesn't come across as harsh. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to your mountaineering, um, 
God, you've done so much, Eric. Do you have anything you look back on with great fondness? Anything you look back on saying that was a game changer right there that changed my life? Well, yeah, there, there was, yeah, one, one adventure in particular is just, it, it will never get any better than that. Okay. Okay. That's okay. So I started getting into peak bagging in the Northeast in the nineties and the big thing up there, you climb the 4,000 foot peaks in the Adirondacks or about 46 of them. And, you know, for Coloradans, it, you know, it's like 4,000 feet, but they're actually really tough. And I think hiking in the Northeast overall is tougher than hiking in the West. The West has its own challenges, but I think it's much tougher in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, I got up to like 80, 90, 100 peaks. I climbed the Adirondack 100 highest, I think in 97. And uh, I was hiking in Vermont in the middle of the winter. It was a 4,000 foot peak and I got on top. And back then I used to have patches on my pack. So, you know, if you like hike something, they can mill you a patch and you put it on your pack for a little bit of bragging rights. And this guy saw that I'd climbed the 3,500 foot peaks in the Catskills, 4,000 footers in the Adirondacks, Northfield Placid Trail. And we just got to talking. And, you know, you can glance at a hiker and, and tell if they're really experienced. It's their gear is held together with duct tape and they're right. totally chill, totally mellow because they're in their element, you know, and they probably don't have much with them. They're wearing like Dickie's work pants and so you know, it looks like a janitor backpacking and, you know, they're just like, whatever, you know, they don't care anything. And he had this kind of whatever look. And uh, he said, um, yeah, I know a guy who's, who's hiked a lot. I said, oh, says, yeah, his name's John Swanson. I've never heard of John Swanson. He's like, yeah, man, he climbed every peak in the Northeast about 3,000 feet. And I didn't know how many that was. I just, I knew there were 46, 4,000 footers, but uh, I don't know. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, yeah, I can give him your address. This is, you know, before the internet emails. He goes, I can give you his address and you can write to him and see if he'll give you the list. It was like, you you couldn't find it anywhere, you know? Mm like the secret club. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like what the hell, you know, I got nothing else to do. So I wrote him and sure enough, he mailed me the list and John Swanson with another guy, Dennis Crispo finished hiking every 3000 foot peak in the Northeast in 1997. And there are 770 and 770 mountains is a lot, but what really gets you is about 420 have no trails. And, you know, there's no trail, out here in Colorado, it's not a big deal. You just walk up the side of it. Out there, it is extremely difficult bushwhacking. I mean, in the, the truest sense of the word, it's just like a South American jungle. So I wrote him and he mailed me this list. The long story short, 10 years later, I finished. And so it's Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and New York. And I just started ticking off state by state I finished New York first because I was living there at the time. And then I would just get a seasonal job in Maine, a seasonal job in New Hampshire. I went to school on the Vermont border. And so I didn't have that far to travel. And 10 years is actually kind of quick. I mean, that's 77 peaks a year. But again, it's the travel, which really kills people. I mean, you're talking way up in northern Maine, all the way down to southern New York and everything in between. Uh, so I finished in 2004, and at the time, I was only the fourth person. Hmm. And there were probably up to about 11 
finishers now. And that's kind of the holy grail of Northeast hiking. Like pretty much most people who have hiked it, people know who they are. They're, they're kind of these legendary hikers. Mm -hmm. Great adventure because it required a lot of camping, a lot of travel, slept in the back of my Subaru wagon a lot, did a lot of peaks in winter. And, uh, you know, you'd go out for like three, four days in a row and just grab as many as you can because you're way the hell back there. You might as well try to grab them all. You do like a a four-day trip and maybe grab like 14 or 15 of them. And then, you know, take a shower, do your laundry, and then go back out again. So that was just the pinnacle of hiking, no pun intended. It, it's just, it's such a good list and it's so difficult um, that, you know, you're going to have like one finisher maybe every five years. Um, but the people who do it are accessing these places that maybe only 15 other people have ever seen. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And how many peaks total was that? Uh, 770. Jeez. And how long did that take again? I know you, you went through a decade. Years. A decade. No kidding. Yeah. A decade long yeah. project. And yeah. And I was doing other stuff. Uh, but when I buckled down, yeah, about 10 years total. Yeah. Do you know what the fastest time is? Has someone gone in and tried to put one whole summer into this or one whole year into this to knock them all out? That's a good question. Um, it would kind of be a impo- almost impossible because of winter, right? Yeah. So when, you know, the snow melts, you know, May. Uh, so you do May, June, July, August, September, October, November, but after that, it would be very difficult. So, for example, um, the Adirondacks have 217 3,000-footers. Um, I've hiked them all in winter. Only two other people have. So it's only three people. I mean, wow. winter is absolutely brutal. Vermont would be pretty easy. Um, but the Adirondacks would be stunningly difficult I met a guy, I forget his name, we emailed for a while, very interesting gentleman. He and another guy um, did all the main 3,000 footers in winter. And I actually personally know a guy who's also done it. So I think only three people, maybe four people have done the main 3,000 footers. And it sounded horrible. I, I'm just so cold. I remember my friend, his name's Tom Sawyer. He's an older gentleman, legendary hiker in the Northeast. And uh, one morning in Maine, he said it was 50 below zero. Whoa. That's no wind, and he is not one to exaggerate. When I was climbing the 3,000-footers in the Adirondacks, it got, I camped in 36 below. So it gets brutally cold. And the Northeast has that really thick, heavy, soupy snow. So a lot of times, if you're doing a half mile an hour, that's acceptable. One mile an hour we would actually be kind of fast. And so you'd end up doing a lot of bivouacking and a lot of camping. It's an acquired taste. It ain't for everybody. <laughs> what advice would you have to somebody looking at um, setting a record or going out and tackling this, this whole project or, or something like that? Would you have advice for them or, or what would you tell that person? Well, I'd, I'd highly recommend that they not think of the overall goal because I remember when I got 200 peaks done and I thought I was hot stuff and I was like, oh my God, 
570 to go. Right. Never even been to Maine. I'm looking at this list of mountains. I haven't heard of any of these mountains. And like 150 of them don't even have names. So they're kind of local made up names. It just seemed so overwhelming. And that's what I do on long distance hikes. Um, You know, if I'm going to do a 300 mile hike, I'm not thinking about the other terminus. I'm not thinking about 15 days of hiking. I'm just going to hike what I can that day and then get up the next morning and uh, with really difficult things that that helps, you know, it would be the same in academics. You know, if you're going to get your master's, and you have like six credits done. Don't think about the other 40 that you need. Mm-hmm. Right? Just concentrate on what you're doing right now. And eventually you'll reach the end. Um, but it can be quite daunting because, you know, you put in so much work and let's say you've got two, 300 peaks uh, done you're like 40% done, 30%. Mm-hmm. And it could be quite demoralizing. It just feels like you're never going to finish. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me, I know all about that. I mean, in the ultra marathon world, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you get 20, 30, 40 miles into a race and you're destroyed. You're compl- you feel like you're 99% done, but you have mm-hmm. so much further to go. And yeah, one of the the monikers in ultra running is just make it to the next aid station. You know, most races have a aid station every six to eight miles. And if you can make Mm -hmm. it to that next aid station, you can sit down, take care of yourself, eat, drink, maybe change your socks and then keep going again. And you're just going to the next aid station and it's a way to keep yourself present. Yeah. And I'd imagine even the most accomplished runners aren't going into these races saying, I'm just going to run a hundred (laughs) miles. Just an easy hundred miles today. Yeah. I mean, I'm (laughs) under the impression a lot of the top runners sometimes don't even finish for what reason. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal sport for sure. Yeah. Were you studying and researching toponyms way back then? Was that something that you were interested in? I was, I wasn't interested in it, but there's a, a classic Northeast history book called forest and crag. It was written in 1989, and it's by Laura and Guy Waterman. And I'm kind of chummy with Laura and Guy has since deceased. But it's a it's a tome. It's a very thick book, and it's just complete Northeast uh, history of mountain climbing. And in there, uh, they would just come out and say, oh, yeah, this is named for such and such. Or you can make connections. You know, they're like, well, Henry Van Hovenberg had an inn on Hart Lake. And then I'd be like, oh, wait, oh, Mount Van Hovenberg is like two miles away. Oh, I get it. It must be named for him. So I started getting interested in it. There's actually a toponym uh, guide to New Hampshire, the White Mountains in New Hampshire. I, I found that in a used bookstore and I read it. And I was like, that is totally cool because a lot of those mountains I had been up, but I it, it never even... It's not that I didn't know. I just didn't even care. I didn't even think about it until I picked up that guidebook. And I was like, oh, yeah, behind every feature, there's a story. And the story is usually pretty good. So early reading got me into it. But there there really aren't many authors who do it, uh, mainly because it's so much work. Meaning in the library, thumbing through all kinds of old Mm -hmm. articles, old newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I historically, I I don't usually write about the urban environment, but I historically decoded Albany, New York's 785 street names, which four years of full-time writing. Whoa. And just 
as an example of how much research it takes, the bibliography has a thousand sources. So <laughs> that's about two sources per page. Wow. So, a lot of research. That's a lot of research, man. Yeah. You must enjoy the research though, because there's so much of it that goes into your work. I love it. Hmm. I, and there are two, uh, I guess, kinds of toponyms that I like best. One are the ones that are not solved and I cannot solve. The, hmm. My favorite ones, I love a good mystery. And if we don't know, that, that's okay. That's okay. Really, I have like uh, somewhere around 90% success rate, which really surprised me. I, I when I started writing, I thought maybe I'd get half. But I'm up around 90%, which really, really good solve rate. And the other toponyms I like are ones that are obvious, or so we think. And other authors have taken a leap of faith thinking that they know without actually finding evidence. And so about 15% of my writing is actually correcting past, uh, past historians' mistakes, where they, it just seemed so obvious. They were like, how can it not be named for such and such? Mm-hmm. Very cautious about that. I, I have to know 100%. You say with authority, this is named for whatever. Um, some people aren't as careful and they also probably didn't have the resources I have. I mean, with the internet, it's within a day, I can examine scores of reputable sources just in one day. So I do have an advantage like that. But again, I like going in and correcting history, uh, not necessarily correcting the author, but just making sure that everything's correct. Yeah. yeah. And so you're carrying this over to Colorado now? Are you? I'm, I'm guessing you're studying toponyms and jotting things down as, as you're living in Colorado as well. This is just like a part of you, just like hiking is, it sounds like. Yeah. So I have uh, five or six uh, Colorado place name books and um, I'm surprised there are so many. I mean, I'm the only one who writes about Adirondack uh, toponyms, but out here I, I easily found five or six books in a used bookstore. Some are old, some are quite new, and those are place names. So they're doing towns and counties, but eventually here and there, they'll sprinkle in a mountain, a pass, or a lake, something like that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I write a book about Colorado mountains someday, and it would just be mountains. So how many mountains in Colorado can I decode? Or maybe I'd limit it, you know, pick like a thousand mountains and decode those, something like that. I'm also interested in Denver in Colorado Springs street names. Uh, I had a lot of fun writing that book about Albany, New York. Now, if you were going to write about Colorado Springs and Denver, you, you could only do the downtown because one, these cities are expanding. You, you couldn't keep up. Mm-hmm. And two, a lot of the names in the suburbs are boring. Uh, a lot of them are named for the developers, uh, nieces, nephews, sons, and daughters, and wives. That's actually <laughs> common so you know you see like Jeanette Street you know next to Toby Lane it's it's definitely the uh developers um children so those get a lot uh, a little bit boring but um just the names that we have here in Colorado Springs are really interesting I've spent only a little bit of time in Denver and they have some hefty names there plus downtown is where you would get the most robust history Hmm. and so will I do that maybe 
I promised myself a year off from writing so I could get back into reading because I really miss reading. But there's something more to come, but it'll probably be mountains or street names. Mm, that's cool. So you have to set aside time and, and tell yourself, I promise myself I'm not going to write for a year just so that I have more time to read. Um, do yeah. you set boundaries like that with, with everything in your life, with hiking, with writing, reading, anything else? No, I just pretty much it. Whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> do whatever sure. I want. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the right, I, I love, I like writing more than reading. So I kind of went from a reader to a writer. I can tell. Yeah, but I really miss it. I miss it so much. So I thought it'd be nice. So during the summer, we have book number 10 coming out. 10's a nice round number. That's nice. Good job, Eric. 10. And now maybe take a year off. So I, I have, it's funny, I buy books. I just don't read them. So I have this big stack of books that's unread. So I'd like to get back into reading. And, and reading is also very relaxing. Um, I don't find research particularly relaxing because it's it uh, really makes your brain work. And especially in the type of work that I do, I need something that's relaxing in a good way. Right? Mm -hmm. It would be nice to you know, after working nine or 10 sessions in one day as a therapist, then I could come back, lay on the couch, get cozy and just read. You know, it's a nice escape, uh, very relaxing. And I, I do like reading for the experience that other authors give to me, you know? So I, when people read my books, I don't, if they think they're fine, that's fine. I'm especially touched by people who read my books and they'll send an email or go to some event that I'm at and they'll say, hey, I read that book. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. The world to me. And so that's why I like reading other authors or they're providing me with a really nice experience. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge reader. Uh, I love literature. Yeah. I always have. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned that you do some writing while you're on the trail and camping. Do you also do some reading? Do you usually carry a book with you? Ah, too heavy. That's gotta be what, two ounces? Yeah. <laughs> Gotta leave it at home. Uh, <laughs> no, um, you just rip the pages out as you read them to make it yeah, lighter. Throw them on the trail behind For me. For sure, <laughs> <laughs> they're biodegradable. Um, no, no, I, I've never brought a book in the mountains, mainly because uh, I pretty much hike from sunup to sundown, so I, I really don't have time. You know, so somebody would be like. More common question, it goes, oh, you get into camp, build a campfire. I'm like, dude, I don't have time. Right. You know, I get there, it's sunset, and I just get my bag and go to sleep. Uh, I think if I brought a book and was reading it, uh, my inner voice would be saying, why aren't you hiking? Like, what are you doing? You know, reading is for what you do at home, Eric. Like, <laughs> running shoes and get back out there. Yeah. Uh, I do bring the journal, but... Uh, Go bring a book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Adirondacks was like a big turning point in your life. When you completed that, it was a big game changer for you. I'm sure mentally, physically, spiritually, in all different levels. Um, how did you feel right after that? Right after you finished? Um, were you looking for the next adventure? Did you have a moment of maybe a little depression and downtime? Um where did you go from there and, and how did you just mm -hmm. keep this thing going? Yeah. Yeah. I, I reached peak number 
770. It was way the hell out in Maine on paper company land and camped on top of that last peak. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, it was, you know, just climbing. It's this mountain called Tumble Down Mountain. It's like 3,700 feet, no trail. It's like way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. And so that was a, a loop hike of three peaks. So I did 768, 769. Okay, now we're going on 770. And I remember stopping and I could see the summit. I was maybe 30 vertical feet below it and like a couple hundred feet away. And just, I stopped and sat down and took my pack off. because I didn't want to finish. <laughs> I, I was so tempted not to go to the top. I really? want that list to finish. And I just sat down, ate some food and it was just a very odd moment. I didn't mean a 10 year project. I was only the fourth person, but hey, so I put my pack on and, you know, finished the one minute climb to the summit. And it was just, I couldn't believe, I could not believe I finished. <laughs> I, I mean, you would think along the way you would get lost or injured or life happens and you can't finish. It would probably be some force outside myself that would stop me. And I could not believe it. I just couldn't believe it. And camped on top and then went down. And I just felt good on the way down. Just good. Like, good job. Like, that's how it's done. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it took a couple of days off when I got home. I didn't hike. And, you know, some friends were like, you know, told some friends. I found they're like, dude, that's awesome. And, you know, it was just it was like a little celebration at the end. But yeah, probably a week after I was already looking at maps again. And that's where I got into winter peak bagging. So a lot of people, very common in the Northeast, you know, somebody will climb the 3,500 foot peaks in the Catskills. There are 35 of them. And then they'll go back and do them all in winter. And this is like a, a, a big pursuit. Again, those really big lists, it's extremely difficult. We've had um, some lists that have not been climbed in winter because they're so tough. Eventually they will be. But that's where I kind of got into winter peak bagging. And it was just because I thought when I reached peak number 770, it was over. I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm done. I don't know what to do now. But then I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just go climb peaks in winter, <laughs> which was pretty cool because you only have that 90-day window. So you really got to start cranking them out. And the mountains are, of course, totally different. I mean... A summit in winter, you would never recognize in summer and vice versa, right? And roads are closed. So you have to snowshoe and ski in and fewer people and, of course, different weather. It's just a whole different experience. I did some other lists where I just reduced the elevation. So I, I climbed the 3,000 footers in the Adirondacks and I just took it down to 2,500. And there are 601 of those. So a couple ideas I had was winter reducing the elevation or both. It was kind of like just looking for an excuse to just keep going. And keep going. You did. <laughs> I did. Um, you did some mountain biking. You did some long distance paddling. Like you've, you've done it all, Eric. Yeah. And I'm, again, I'm just incredibly grateful, but that's what I say all the time. And um, uh, people have called me, modest but i don't think i'm modest i just i really don't think it's a big deal like i I just 
It's like if you want to go out and climb 770 peaks, you can. Mm-hmm. Not like, I mean, it's hard, but it's not impossible. It's impossible if you don't want to. You know, so could I be an ultra runner? Probably, you know, if I really wanted to, but I ain't gonna because my racing career is one 5K and then my career ended. That, that was my <laughs> beginning and retirement, same race of running. It's, you know, I'm not a runner. I'm not that type. Yeah. So with all these things, you know, whether it's getting a certain degree or having your own podcast or being an ultra runner or whatever, it can be done. It's just, do you have the passion to do it? And so hiking comes so naturally to me. People are like, oh my God, 770, that's a lot of mountains. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I just was out hiking. I want to go for a walk. Big deal. Uh, because it can be done by anybody who really wants it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's just one step at a time. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, name, if you don't mind, go through a couple of your big adventures that you've done. You did a long distance hike in Florida, your long distance mountain bike. Uh, was that the the CDT or what was that exactly? Yeah, I've done a couple of long bike trips. So I love bikes. Yeah, me too. My mountain bike's in my bedroom just so I can look at it. I got <laughs> I just like looking at it. Mine's right. I've been riding I like looking since. at mine too. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. I've been riding bikes since I was a little kid. And I like yesterday, I still remember uh, the day I got my uh, training wheels off my bike. <laughs> so clearly I remember crashing in the bushes really hard. Cause you know, you freeze up and you don't, you forget that brakes exist. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I rode BMX bikes in the eighties and then I raced mountain bikes in the nineties. I uh, raced cross country mostly in the Northeast, a little bit down South, and then started getting into long distance uh, mountain biking. So my first trip, I re- it was about a thousand, maybe 1100 miles through Southern Utah and then down Arizona. So you have the Arizona trail, but it's really too rugged for bikes and it goes through wilderness areas. So there's this, they call it uh, the Arizona trail corridor or something like that. So you can kind of ride next to it you know, so like kind of you're on the trail, kind of like they do with the Colorado trail, you know, if it goes through a wilderness area, you got to go around. Yep. So uh, did that. That was cool. That was 2002. And I was like, oh, I'll do a longer trip and uh, rode the U.S.-Mexico border end to end. I'm still the only person who ever, has ever done it. Really? I've done it on pavement, but I specifically did it on a mountain bike with the goal of riding next to the border wall or the border fence or there's nothing in some sections as much as I could. And that was just a crazy trip. That was 2,200 miles and uh, camped out every night. And uh, it, it's just really interesting. That it's total wild west down the border. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hell, I'll do another one. So rode from Canada to Mexico. And that, that was my big ride. That was about 2,700. And a lot of people ride it now. My friend just did it this summer. They'll ride the um great divide mountain bike route yes i was like ah that's for wusses you got to make your own (laughs) so uh i just got a bunch of maps and i traced the route myself uh i went through montana idaho wyoming utah and arizona and so that was about 2700 miles about 52 days camped out almost every night and um 
that was just so that so cool. I, I had perfect weather. It rained like four days in Montana. And then you're riding through Utah, which I think it's the prettiest state. I think it's even more scenic than Colorado. I, just Utah's jaw dropping. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arizona was nice because I was there in like October. So it wasn't that hot. Um, so that was that was really, really good. To be honest, I haven't ridden my mountain bike in probably like seven years uh, because I'm mainly a hiker now. But, but my roots are actually in biking and not hiking. Mm-hmm. What are some of the big through hikes that you've done? Um, I know you've done a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, well, my ideal hike is maybe 250 miles. You know, I, I don't need like a 2000 mile trail. So uh, the first one was Northville Placid Trail again in the Adirondacks. That's 130 miles. I've done that four times. Oh, wow. And then a route I created, which crosses the entire Adirondack Park, like the whole thing. That's the 240 mile trans Adirondack route. I've done that twice. And we're up to about 30 through hikers now. So it's getting a little popular. Uh, the long trail, that's 270. Yes. Trail in New Hampshire is 65. Florida trail is 1300. I did a hundred mile hike across uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's hundred miles there. Uh, 270 mile hike through Pennsylvania. That was the Baker Trail. And I think part of the North Country National Scenic Trail. Uh, a cool little trail nobody's heard of, Metacomet Monadnock. Quite a name. Metacomet Monadnock uh, goes across Massachusetts and ends on a peak in southern New Hampshire. And the peak is Mount Monadnock. And its claim to fame is it's the most climbed peak in the world. Really? Even more than Mount Fuji, which is wow. crazy. Oh, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people go up it every year uh mainly uh most people from boston and so oh the tahoe rim trail okay highly recommend Mm. 165 miles uh runs around the ridges that uh uh go around lake tahoe itself uh really really nice and there's probably a couple other hikes i'm missing in there I've, i've also done some trail systems so uh, the Adirondack High Peaks Wilderness Area has a 270-mile trail system, so I hiked every trail in the trail system. Same with uh, the Foothills Trail in South Carolina, and then the Catskill Park has like a 330-mile trail system. But you, gen- you, you just about doubled mileage. That's why those are really difficult when you tackle trail system. So for example, High Peaks Wilderness Area in the Adirondacks, the trail system is 269. And this guy recently hiked it. And um, he, he kept data. He had like a GPS or a smartwatch or something. And he covered 540 miles. Huh. <laughs> it was almost precisely double. And then it was insane. It was like 190,000 vertical feet or something. So Trail systems are really difficult because you're probably going to double the mileage. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Unreal, man. Um, looking back over everything you've done, is there any people that stand out? Um, like I met another adventurer. I met a crazy person and had a great conversation or we shared a campfire. Is there any people that stand out in your mind as, man, that person sort of shaped who I am? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll have, we'll have to go back to Tom Sawyer. Okay. Real name. 
<laughs> and then be suspicious of his wife's name because she's Diane Sawyer. So yeah. No way. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Tom is now in his 80s. And Tom, Zo- Tom Sawyer is the most legit hiker ever, um, it, which is totally different than today. So today you have some younger hikers doing some uh, kind of cool things, nothing crazy. And they go on Instagram and they get 2,000 followers, right? But, but they don't know the history. You know, they, they don't know, like, who started peak bagging. You know, like, how did this all begin? Mm-hmm. And part of it began with Tom Sawyer. And um, he's from, I believe, Massachusetts, though now he's living in southern New Hampshire. And he was first to climb every 3,000-foot peak in New England. There are 451 and that's part of that bigger project of the 770. So he did those. And then I do not know how he did them all in winter. And I think that's the greatest hiking accomplishment in the Northeast. It might be the greatest hiking accomplishment in the United States. And people are like, well, you know, it's 450 peaks. All right, well, that's a lot, but they're not really high. You know, there's like a couple 5,000 footers, but that's it. But again, it's just, so incredibly remote and so cold. So like a lot of peaks out here, you can get to the top and you'll find a summit register. And I would find these summit registers in Maine, New Hampshire, way out in the boonies. And Tom Tom Sawyer signed in and it would be like January 17th, 1979, 27 below off to the next peak. And he put in a lot. I've talked to him about this. He's uh, put it, he put in a lot of 18 hour days and he was solo almost on every peak. And so he, he would drive out in this four wheel drive Subaru wagon. Now Diane Sawyer is really tough too. She didn't climb all the peaks, but she climbed quite a few with them. And she was kind of like the base camp manager. So she's out there camping where it's 30, 35 below zero. They go way back in and he would see how many peaks he could get done. But the whole way, I mean, there's nobody out there. He's breaking trail for 18 hours, and it's like freaking 20 below. That's brutal. I'm so fortunate to have spoken to him. He's been not a man. He's like my hero. I, I mean, he is totally legit. And when you talk to Tom Sawyer, he is the most modest person ever. And he he only talks about the beauty of it. He goes, it, it was great. It was like a spiritual journey. I learned a lot about myself. Um, I overcame obstacles. I never thought I would. There were quite a few times I just thought I was going to die and pull through and didn't freeze to death. And um, it's just so refreshing. So like Tom Sawyer is legit, right? And super modest. But then, and look, people can do whatever they want, but we do have this generation of young hikers who climb you know, maybe the Adirondack 46 in fair weather. And they think they're like the bee's knees. And it's like, dude, you have no idea how not awesome you are. (laughs) You don't stink and I'm very happy for you. And I hope you continue hiking. That's great. But if any, the, in general, what I encounter uh, are the most accomplished hikers are the quietest, right? Quietest. Um, So, like, 
I, I don't know anybody who's a really accomplished hiker. You couldn't tell by looking at them. You know, they don't have patches on their packs and they don't have a personalized license plate that says 80K 4,000. They're like totally regular dudes and they don't brag about it either. You know, mm-hmm. somebody's like, oh, I climbed that around 46. They'll be first to congratulate them and be like, that's really cool. You know, I, I hope you had a good time. They would never say, well, I've climbed every 3,000. Because one, nobody cares. And two, they're in general, pretty classy people. And it's nice climbing here in Colorado. I I see the same names in the registers. We've got Jerry Roach and Ken Nolan, John Kirk, Allison Kirk, Bob Martin. I'm kind of seeing who the legends are out here. I'm pretty much a nobody compared to them. I mean, I've been up almost 400 peaks, but that's nothing. And again, you know, guys like Jerry Roach, Ken Nolan, they were doing this stuff back in the seventies, eighties, which is totally badass. They were doing, they were doing it before it was cool. Yeah, totally. Totally. Great. I'm curious what, um, your thoughts are as a hiker, when you see a runner or an ultra runner out there going for the fastest known time up and down some of these peaks, do you get annoyed with us? And what are your thoughts? Like, when I'm out running in the mountains, I'm enjoying it in my own way, right? I'm not, I bet you I'm not stopping and smelling the roses quite as much as you. I'm not thinking about the the different toponyms and the names and why was this trail named this or this mountain named this, Mm -hmm. but I'm just out there sort of getting my endorphin rush and enjoying it in my own way. Um, Do you look differently at people that are trying to do these things as fast as humanly possible, faster than anybody else has before? No, I think it's great. It's great. Um, it does make me feel really, really out of shape though, because <laughs> I was on Missouri mountain, which is a 14,000 footer. And I was kind of plugging along up it. And this guy ran by me. It was so annoying. It was, it was like the nerve, you know, <laughs> it totally blew by me running. I mean, running at 14,000 feet. I was like, damn, dude, that's crazy. I, I think it's awesome. And there has been, uh, I've picked up on a little criticism here and there about people go for fastest known times, but it's really none of my business. You know, however you want to experience the mountains, I think is great, you know, and, and for the people who criticize you know, people are trying to do things really fast. Why don't you criticize slow hikers? Right. What's the difference? Totally. Slow hikers are okay, but fast hikers aren't okay. I don't really understand that logic. I think it's great. And it's really impressive. And those folks like yourself and many others, especially here in Colorado, who like mountain running, um, they do it for the love of it. Mm-hmm. Because again, nobody really cares, you know, and, you know, you're not going to get much fame or fortune from doing it. It's just pure, for the pure love of it. It, it. It's just a very pure pursuit. I, I, I've always been a fan of, um, I, I like fastest known times. I, I like them because it is uh, competitive, but it strikes me as very friendly competition which I like, you know, everybody's ladies and gentlemen about it. I think that's awesome. And I just think it's cool. You know, if somebody can run a hundred miles through the mountains, I'm very interested in the physiology of it. 
um, interested in the tactics and te techniques they use. Um, all the failed runs where they got up to 50 or 60 bail. There's a lot more to it than just somebody running up a mountain faster than you don't like. You know, there's a deeper story behind it. And so I'm a fan. Yeah. And maybe I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> Do you look back on your sort of heyday of mountaineering with, um, as the glory days. Um, do you look back at your twenties and your fitness back in your twenties and sort of miss those days? Or do you feel like you're pretty much doing the same thing nowadays? Yeah. I, well, I do miss, uh, the carefree attitude I had. So like, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a mailing address. I was just kind of doing whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a freer time than now. That's really the only thing I miss. I, I mean, if I go on a long distance hike, I'm still, I can still do 25 mile days. It's, it's not that bad. So physically I feel great. I'm 48 now. And I don't, I've lost some speed. I'm not as fast, but I hike smarter and my endurance has increased. So during my twenties and thirties, like 10 hour day was my limit. And uh, I did quite a few 12-hour days this past summer and climbing like, you know, 5,000 vertical feet, you know, maybe 13 miles, 5,000 vertical feet. And uh, so I feel great physically. Uh, I, the only thing I miss is, is, is the freedom of it. You know, now I have like a 401k and, you know, I own an iron. I have an iron, you know, I'm like all grown up now. <laughs> the poster. So uh, the, the freedom of it all was really appealing, but I, I, I'm much more um, like if I don't make it up a mountain now, I don't care. Like, I just don't care. And many years ago, I'd be like, oh, man, I should have gone up earlier and I'm not in good enough shape. And uh, I definitely should have gone up the south side instead of the north side. Now, I'm just like, whatever, as long as I'm out in the mountains, I'm really not picky where I end up that night. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. And yeah. that's, that's easy to do in Colorado, other States. It's not quite so easy to do, but yeah, Colorado, you just get lost anywhere and you're just going to have a ball. Yeah. And, uh, I went to my chiropractor this morning and said, Eric, where are you hiking this weekend? I say, you know, man, I, I do like, I, I look at the maps. And I'm like, Oh, I'll go here. I'll go there. I was like, it doesn't matter. I could just go anywhere. And really? it's awesome. If it's in Colorado. Yeah. Oh, uh, I don't even plan hikes anymore. I just look at the map and I'm like, oh, that looks fun. I'll just go there. And I get there and it's perfect. Cool. I was going to ask you that as a closing question. Do you have any hikes planned this weekend? But it sounds like you just kind of wing it. So you just uh, pull out a map, get in the car and just go for it and explore something new. Yeah, it's still warm. Uh, in summer, I retreat down to Canyon City. So mm. I'm hiking in the high desert. Uh, it's a little bit toasty for December. Yeah. I'll probably be out near Buena Vista. That's cool. my favorite place to hike. I love Buena Vista. And then, of course, on the west side of town, you have the Sangre de Cristos, which, I mean, it's so scenic. It should be illegal. I mean, it's <laughs> really, really nice area. It is. Have you ever thought about um, giving up the apartment or, or mortgage or whatever it is you have and mm -hmm. maybe just getting a van and going out and traveling around? Or have you ever thought about... I'm um, sure I've got a job, but I'm going to take a leave of absence. I'm going to take six months, 12 months and go hike this big thing. 
Is that something yeah. you still sort of fantasize about? I have thought about it. Yeah. Uh, and I could still keep my job because I could just do telehealth. Oh, yeah. As long as I have internet, I could do it. Yeah. And that's a big thing. I mean, you don't see, um, you don't see many van life people in the East. It's just not a thing. I mean, <laughs> everywhere. Everybody in Colorado. Oh, it's great. You've got these pimped out, you know, Tundras or uh, Mercedes or Dodge Ram or Transit, stuff like that. It just looks fun. Yeah. Straight up fun. <laughs> and it did cross my mind. It did cross my mind. But, and pe- I think people would be surprised to hear this. I, I think I'd be really depressed. Mm. I'd be really lonely. Okay. And I, I, I don't know. I think I'd be like, some guy, you know, I'm a bachelor at 48 living in a van down by the river. <laughs> like it sounds so, cool when you're 22, but when you're 48, not so much. <laughs> now I could do it. I could do it if I had a young lady companion. If I had a companion, I think I could totally do it. But to do it solo, it would just seem like, I think I'd feel kind of like a lost soul. Kind of like a nomad. Yeah. I've already done the nomad thing. Maybe it's because I've already done the nomad thing. So sure. I got that out of my system. Um, you know, if I didn't, I think I'd feel the opposite. You know, if I had like a desk job through my 20s and 30s, I might be looking for a van now. Right. I did my retirement first. I think I'm kind of settling down now. Yeah. Yeah. Great idea. And it's totally cool. It's a big Western thing and it it does look really, really fun. Yeah, it is fun, but I get it. I could only do it for so long. Like I I'd be great for a month, three months, something like that. Mm-hmm. But after a while, it's like, yeah, okay. I need a fridge with some food in it and, uh, yeah. you know, a bathroom, some plumbing that it's usually pretty yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We uh, need that. Yeah. Um, what's next for you, Eric? Um, you're in Colorado now. Are, are your sites mainly set on Colorado peaks and projects here or what? Yeah. Over the next five yeah. years, like what do you have planned? Yeah, it's planned to do here. So I'd like to climb a thousand peaks in Colorado, just, just random, whatever, not by height or anything. I've, I'm coming up about 400. So that's pretty good. 40%. Yeah. Um, of course the Colorado trail, that's the classic. So I'd probably do that over two summers, you know, cut it in half. That would be 240 each. Uh, the um, Continental Divide section of Colorado is quite striking. I've been on a couple sections by chance. That's totally cool. Um, I try to do a warm weather hike each winter. So last winter I was down in Texas. I did a 200 mile hike and I was just planning a planning uh, before we started speaking uh, this winter, probably maybe South Carolina on the Palmetto Trail or the Benton Mackay Trail, which is in Georgia, or the Pody Trail in Alabama. I'm not sure. I'll be probably in the Southeast United States this winter. But yeah, I'm mainly a, um, a peak guy throwing in, you know, a 200, 300 mile hike once a year. Yeah. Yeah. And you're mainly doing the peaks that aren't really packed on the weekends. Like in Colorado, the 14ers are really popular. And I'm sure that you've been up a bunch of 14ers and probably would like to get to them all, but I don't think that's high on your list to knock off all the 14ers. I think you would rather do the 12ers or the 13ers if I had to guess. 
Oh yeah, good guess. Yeah, <laughs> a wild guess. Um, yeah, if I don't get the fourteeners, whatever. Like, yeah. I care. I've been up maybe a dozen. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm the black sheep, so like, I'll climb a twelve thousand footer, and if there's a fourteener next by, I'll I'll just throw it in for a bonus where people kind of do the opposite. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these peaks I go up. Um, most don't have trails. Uh, quite a few don't have names. And you're not going to really see anybody, even the 13ers. So getting back to these canisters on top, um, I've been collecting data on that as well. So I'll find out how long it was there, how many people signed in, and then calculate how often people are going up there. The average trail list 13er uh, gets four people a year. So it's pretty quiet. (laughs) Yeah, the av- the average trailless thirteener, uh, yeah, one person every three months. Wow, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a feather in your cap. Uh, I'm I'm glad you're in Colorado, man. Like, uh, it too. sounds like you've been getting after it for the last couple of years, and it's not going to slow down anytime soon. So that's the plan. That's cool, man. Um, where can people find you? You have a website, correct? Oh, I do. Yeah. Um, so the website is just the hiking veteran. So thehikingveteran.com. There are my uh, articles there. You can buy books and see what I'm up to, kind of review of my past adventures and what is around the corner. And then I'm on Instagram too. It's the hiking veteran again, but between each word is an underscore. So it's just the underscore hiking underscore veteran. I put up all kinds of pretty photos in Colorado there. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Look him up, um, buy his books. Uh, I can't wait to dig into this book, man. I've just started it and I really enjoy your writing style and just Thank your you. memory, man. And just your capacity for just remembering everything when you were a kid, like, yeah, <laughs> I can tell that's what you're all about. And I love it, man. Good. Well, I'm flattered. Thank you. Well, for sure. And I'll keep you posted when I finish it just to, just to give you a word, but um, yeah, man, stay in touch. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this again. I hope I don't lose this one. I'll take responsibility, even though it was zoom's fault. Damn it. It was zoom's fault. And they won't hook me up with those, those copies. (laughs) Well, third time's a charm. Third time's a charm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Eric. And um, have yourself a a good uh, weekend, man. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. You're welcome on the show. Anytime, man. Thank you. All right. Take care. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening. You guys, what did you think? Give me a shout. Let me know. Remember to subscribe, like share review. We are on Patreon as do big things. That is patreon.com slash do big things. Follow us and support us there. I can't keep this thing going without you guys. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can support us for a whole month. Thank you so much to all of our supporters. I love you guys. We want to thank our sponsors. First of all, Exoskin. They make a full range of apparel from hats to socks and everything in between. Exoskin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand that is made in the U.S. Their stuff is tremendous at providing protection from chafing, blisters, hot spots, and odor. If you're into anything outdoors and you haven't bought any of their stuff, you are slipping, Jack. Their shorts, socks, shirts, and hats have been through some of the most challenging and rigorous races in the world, and they stand behind their products with a 30-day money-back guarantee. 
If you wear it and you're not convinced, send it back for a full refund. So you have nothing to lose. Check them out. Exoskin.us. Use our promo code BTC, all caps, for big things crewing. And that is a 15% promo code, you guys. This podcast is also brought to you by On Pace Wellness. Will Benitez is working with some of the finest athletes around, and he's helping them find even more success. Will's a certified nutritionist, and he knows what's what when it comes to diet and nutrition. You want to take your game to the next level? Contact On Pace Wellness. Maybe you're not an elite athlete, and you just want to be healthier and feel better on the day-to-day. Maybe you just need a little guidance. Contact On Pace Wellness. Mention this podcast, and he's going to give you a 10% discount and get you properly tuned up for success. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Brewing, the finest non-alcoholic craft beer on the market. Have yourself a tasty beer or two without all the negative side effects. You can have one in the middle of the day, not have to worry about driving. You can have a couple at night, not have to worry about being groggy in the morning. There's no hangover with this stuff because there is no alcohol. Check out athleticbrewing.com. Use my discount code, McRobertsA20, all caps, for 20% off the best non-alcoholic beer around. Buy two six-packs or more, and you don't have to worry about shipping costs. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. Remember, guys, life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, take us for a run.